let's face it, if your child is busy during the school year, you are too. The question is, how can you help that child manage the stress of school? This is the Thriving Student Podcast. I'm John Fuller, and today on our episode, Kids and Their Health. My co-host is our Vice President of Parenting and Youth here at Focus on the Family, Danny Huerta. And and Danny, as we uh, get going on this, let me just make an observation. I saw a stat about the percentage of kids who are obese. That number has tripled in about 50 years in our country. Uh, there is a general lack of physical well-being for our children, and it has to be talked about at some point. What yes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's the fuel and the time spent on what we choose to spend our time in. In reality, technology is very attractive to many of us. And when we say yes to technology, we're saying no to some things, including exercise. And the amount of food that's out there that is not good for the body is much higher than it used to be. And so you combine the two and you have obesity. Uh, There there is uh, a, a known fact that kids are less active. Uh, they feel active online, yeah. uh, and many of them are getting together through social media, so they don't have to walk somewhere or walk together. They're walking together on the phone, uh, just talking to each other and chatting. And they tend, kids tend to stay up pretty late, it seems, with a lot of technology too, don't they? So that probably leads, I'm guessing, to sleep deprivation? And snacking late at night as well. Yeah. And doctors have said that sleep is important for our metabolism and you are absolutely right, John. Sleep makes a huge difference. The kids are staying up later because they can. And uh, really what I would encourage parents to think about is what fuel is going into my child's body? What are they saying yes to? What do I need to put limits on? And really life is about balance. Mm. And we have a hard time with that. It takes a lot of intentionality. It does. My wife is so good about feeding us organic food, whole foods. She she has a big garden that she keeps out <laughs> in the yard during the summer. And so we eat well. And it really irritates her when my teenage son wants a bag of chips and a soda. It's like every now and then I'll just say, go for it. I mean, it, you you got to have some little pleasures <laughs> in life, but not a steady diet of that stuff, right? Right, yeah. Some kids will definitely fight their parents on this, on eating healthy. Be persistent with that. I remember when we chose to go healthy in our home. My son and my daughter said, are we really doing this, Mom and Dad? (laughs) (laughs) And it was was good. We had to be ready to explain why. And really, it's about the brain, the body, the health. We're stewards of the body we've been given. And uh, it certainly may not make sense to an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old, but for parents, we get to help them figure this out. Oh, that's good. I appreciate that framework. All right, we're going to listen to a conversation that Focus President Jim Daly had with Dr. Paul Reiser and Dr. Julie Slattery about nutrition. And uh, the discussion was based on a great book that Dr. Reiser wrote that many are going to find helpful. It's called The Busy Mom's Guide to Family Nutrition. Let's go ahead and listen in. It's interesting, though. I had a physician recently tell me, uh, just coaching me along, saying, buy along the outside of the store. That's right. And I thought, that's interesting. He said, along the outside of the store is the stuff you should eat. Everything internally to the store is processed sugar, fructose, the stuff you shouldn't eat. So the produce section along the outside of the store, the dairy section along the outside of the store, yogurt. If you think about it, that's how they... Set up the store. Right. And, and that they would make force shopping, you to the middle. <laughs> that would make shopping a lot quicker, Yeah, just too. go around like the outside idea. aisle. I like <laughs> no, that that's idea. That's actually true. Um, this is really a different, a different point, but one that I make all the time in the office, and that is people always ask about whether they should take uh, 
what about supplements? You know, I'm going to I'm going to shortcut this whole food thing and just get it with supplements. Well, that is really a shortcut attempt that really is sort of like to me that's like saying I'm going to get my spiritual nourishment in 2 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh it really does take more time than that. You can't get in a supplement what you get from the original substance. Well, in fact, some people are saying that the supplements that are provided today our body may only absorb 5 10% of the supplement itself. I'm not Is sure that true? Th- no, I, I actually I'm not sure that that's quite accurate. That's a I think that's more of a marketing statement than the truth. If you talk to professional organizations that advise on nutrition and you ask them what vitamins should people take, most of them say if you eat from all the the main groups and you are broad based in your food choices, you probably don't need to take a supplement hmm. if you're eating right. You're right. What percentage of the American population or you know, the Canadians as well. What percentage of us eat right? It's a good question. If you go by the biggest eating problem, which is uh, being overweight, uh, I would say that uh, the majority are eating just too much and probably not making great choices. The, the answer to your question about how do I prep really depends on what age you're talking about mm-hmm. because it makes a huge difference. You know, if you're talking about a young infant, obviously you're mostly going to want a, a young infant should be breastfed ideally and with formula as a supplement if somebody else needs to feed the baby or if she really can't. But that's huge because the breastfed infants are less prone to obesity and they have fewer visits to the doctor's office and breast milk is made for infants and not, you know, and cow's milk is made for cows. Now we actually, no one should feed an infant cow's milk until they're a year old, but in formula is, is a very reasonable substitute, but we encourage breast milk. Any pediatrician will tell you that's what they encourage moms to do. Once you get out of that newborn stage and you start introducing other foods, you want to be thinking, okay, I really want to get this baby used to certain textures and certain kinds of flavors. And, and you, so one good idea with young children is just don't get them eating a lot of sweet stuff. Uh-huh. Don't give them bottles of juice. Uh, 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 the first age to even start any juice would be six months, if that, and go easy because the juiceaholic kids tend to be more overweight, have dental problems and all sorts of things. So we'd say let them sample these things, let them be fresh, and of course a, a, a baby's going to be taking ground up and pureed stuff, but keep the sweets out, keep the soft drinks away now from that's the... Now that's somewhat easy to do with your first child. Right. When you have older siblings, <laughs> though. And, Teenagers, uh, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Well, and, and also you even have a younger child that has older siblings and is seeing and smelling and, uh, right. you know, that, that there's more to life than smash peas. And then you introduce grandparents, too, who bring the sweets and the corruptors cookies. Of they corruptors of cheese. They do. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can form the taste buds early on and help them not get into the sweets early, that would be that's, mm. that's a great idea. The other thing that I really encourage parents to do is not become uh, fanatics about making the child eat everything on the plate. The whole thing of the clean plate club is a mythology that, that drives people later on in life to eat food when they're not hungry anymore or to be at a restaurant with half a plate of food and they're no longer hungry and they feel like they got to eat it because they don't want to waste it. I've talked to many patients who can't stand the idea of throwing food away. But that's a fine balance because I know sitting at the kitchen table of Trent and Troy, uh, I can tell they're finicky Mm -hmm. and they'll just refuse to eat three bites of protein, like a meat, chicken or something like that. So I have to get into this debate with them. Well, eat three bites of chicken, and then you can have some fruit or something like that. And you have to do so 
some of that negotiating, but you don't get into this thing. You have to clean the plate or you'll have to sit here for four hours until, yeah, you, until you can do something else. Uh, I think the idea is you put healthy stuff on the table, right. on the plate, and that's your job. The child's job is to eat what they're going to eat. And what younger children tend to do is to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're not. And we forget how to do that when we're older, which is one of the many reasons why so many people are overweight. Because we're eating because we're not hungry. We're eating because we're tired or bored or happy or socializing, whatever. But children will tend to do that if you don't force them. This is particularly difficult, I think, when you have teenagers. I have teenage boys, and it's tempting just to feed them carbs because it fills them up. They're cheap. They like them. You know, the boys are always hungry. And to have protein and fruit and salads, uh, to fill them up on those kind of things just seems almost impossible. How do I combat that kind of issue? Well, let me ask you this. So it, given that situation, what are they um, – you cannot control what they're going to do once they leave your door. Right. right. You can only control the food environment in your house. Yeah. So you really have to s- decide and, – and this is a good subject for sort of family power. I think that if you suddenly are a place where there's been a lot of pizza and Coke and all this kind of stuff, and you decide now you are going to become, you know, Yule Gibbons, you know, bringing in – nothing but uh, raw vegetables, and that's all they're going to eat. Well, there's going to be rebellion. They're going to just... They're not just going to drink the carrot juice. They're not going to go yeah. for the raw whatever and the unrefined, you know, the and so on. They are going to go out where they can find the foods that they're used to. So you have to sort of work this out incrementally and sit down. I think it's a good family discussion type of thing and to say, look, kids, I'm really concerned. I know that you like these kind of foods. I know that this tastes good. It feels good. It's what everybody's eating. But the fact is that this is really not the kind of habit that I think I want you to continue doing. It's just as if you were sitting in front of the TV for five hours a day. We wouldn't want that either, even though that's what they gravitate toward. We're going to set some boundaries here about how many hours we spend in front of the TV. We're going to really encourage the family to get out and exercise, whatever that looks like. And when it comes to food, I'm gonna we're gonna start making some incremental changes. We're gonna start putting more fruit on the table instead of candy or chips or whatever. We're going to start wanting to try more different types of things. What kind of things would you like? And get them thinking about it. Maybe get them to research it a little bit. Maybe get them going to the store with you and and sort of doing this as a family deal instead of coming down because the command from you know a food fascist is not gonna work in most environments. The food fascist. I like, I like that. that. Yeah. Are you a food fascist? Uh, my husband has called me the vegetable Nazi, so oh, good. I That's guess good. I'm getting close to that. <laughs> well, do you, and Julie, you're suggesting. I mean, this is a struggle for you too. Yes. And you you don't quite know how to no, pull it all together. I think Jean would agree with that. I think it's hard for her. Yeah, and, and she some feels of it. Guilty. Yeah, some of it, Doctor Reiser. What you said is very true. We started the boys very young on vegetables. Um, you know, I can remember those days of seeing them in their high chair when they just had broccoli on that plate and they didn't want to eat it. Uh, And one of the things that we had to do very consistently is cut out snacks because when kids are snacking all day and you put in front of them chicken and broccoli and salad, they're not going to want to eat it. But if they're hungry, I found that they'll eat almost anything. So those are some of the things that we've done. It's amazing how that works. Yeah. If you're hungry, you'll eat. Yes, uh, a very good principle. Don't, yeah, the the snacks all over the house and the grazing lead to 
all kinds of things. Yeah, poor choices, obesity, and, and not sitting down and eat the good stuff that's available. I was talking to one mom who had a three- or four-year-old, and she said, I just can't get him to eat. I can't get him to eat anything. And as I asked her more questions, she's like, the only way I can get him to eat is I follow him around the house and feed him his favorite chicken nuggets. And I said, <laughs> Wow, that's a great diet. You know, and I said, uh, I think maybe we've got a problem here. you got to sit him down and... But he won't eat anything if I don't give him these chicken nuggets. He'll starve. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay, common mythology is, yes, my child will starve if they don't eat chicken nuggets, macaroni, whatever the, the food. The, and there, there's the, the other little food fascist that says, I'm going to hunger strike unless I get my favorite food. No, they won't. I guarantee they will, you know, unless the child has something desperately wrong with them, which few do, you offer them what they should get. And if they're hungry, they'll eat it. Okay, let's play this out a little bit. Uh, the mom uh, that has that finicky uh, eater tonight, what should she do? She puts in front of that little guy chicken, broccoli, and something right, else. a little pasta. If they a little like pasta that, or something, something yeah. like that. And right. he says, no. Great. What do I do now? So I said, well, if you're, are you done? Yeah, okay. Put it in the fridge and move on. Now, you might want to ask him to stick around. If he's old enough, he ought to stick around the table a little bit, not just run off, because you're teaching him that this is more than just a trough. You're going to sit and eat together and we're going to talk and then when he's ready to go say fine uh but don't give in to when he comes back 10 minutes later and asks for something else something else you say oh i got that food for you from dinner here let's try that again now you know you don't want to have that plate there for you know four days you know obviously at some point you're going to have to but that night that. but you let him know that this is what we're having and believe me he'll eat when yeah. he's, and maybe not at six, but and, maybe and at I seven. I think what, what the problem is is it obviously that's easy to say here in the booth, but when you have a child who just won't won't let up and they keep asking and asking and asking and you finally you just had enough, so here. And this is one of those tough moments of parenting where you just say, "Yeah, I'm the mom, and you're not. Mm-hmm. I'm in charge. You're not. I love you dearly. I'm doing this for a reason. I mean, you may be thinking that you may not be able to, you know, communicate to him in that moment of conflict, but you still, you're in charge. And just remember, you're in charge. That is a tricky thing. Sometimes you get a little bit of wrath from a child, and you want to kind of back up, but you got to hold steady. I appreciate Dr. Reiser's advice there. And uh, Danny, there is a known connection between eating well and doing well in school, isn't there? Even kids know this. I've heard kids say, I'm going to have sugar, and then everybody's going to have to deal with me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. They're yes. so bold as to just make the prediction. They just go for it. Yeah, and it really helps with our self-control. Uh, concentration is another place that researchers have found uh, is helped by good nutrition. Uh, focus. It just overall gives the, the fuel to the brain that it needs, that, that brain that we're a steward of needs the right nutrition to Hmm. function correctly. And then the rest of the body. My son has learned now as a teenager that if he eats right, he'll have less what we call blemishes. Uh, Another word for it is zits. And when he gets some of those, it gives a clue to him that maybe I haven't been eating the right food for my body, my skin. Hmm. Everything requires it, right? Your eyes, your, your brain, everything. But most importantly, when you are learning... Your brain is using up a lot of uh, a lot of calories and also needing to feed the cells mm. so that the memory will work correctly and the learning will take place. And it's it's like having a car 
and you put the wrong fuel, it's just it may function for a little while, but it's going to break down. Same thing happens to our body. We need to go to the I call the the kitchen the gas station. You go there for a little while, hang out, fuel it well for the rest of the day. Oh, it's not good. a destination. It's a place you stop to get the right fuel for the rest of the day. Well, I hope you're going to follow up and uh, stop by our website for a copy of The Busy Mom's Guide to Family Nutrition by Dr. Paul Reiser. Uh, it's at focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. And uh, while you're there, don't forget we have our best year-ever email resource. It's provided by the Focus Parenting Team, and you can sign up for that. Once again, the site, focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. Now, as parents, we know how difficult it can be to get your kids in bed on time. It seems like that is a game kids play. How much longer can I stay up, even before a school day? And we're going to turn now to Dr. Archibald Hart. He is an expert on the topic of sleep, and some of his insights are going to grab your attention. Here is that conversation that Dr. Julie Slattery and Jim Daly and I had with Dr. Hart. You know, sometimes in the culture, though, uh, especially as a man, I I know that there's an esteem about working hard and Mm -hmm. staying at the office until 8 o'clock or later. And you know what? You get home, you do emails, and then you're up early trying to get more work done. Why do we seem to have this backward? Well, we've lost respect for sleep. There's no doubt about it. Uh, It's become a, a, a commodity, a luxury commodity in people's thinking. We have not really understood until fairly recently the importance of sleep. So we've, I think we've let the topic get away from us. We've not been brought back by good science, by what we, we should know. And um, the drive to be successful, and particularly uh, since the advent of the Internet, uh, we were wreaking havoc on the whole sleep mm-hmm. issue. When you look at sleep for the adult, how much sleep should an adult get? That's the question. Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I have to explain a few things before I can answer that question. The official uh, sleep need for a healthy adult, notice that, minimum sleep need for a healthy adult is somewhere between seven and a half and eight hours, most leaning towards eight hours, but that is actual sleep. To get eight hours of sleep, you have to spend about nine hours in bed Mm -hmm. because uh, in order to fall asleep, there are certain things the brain has got to do. There's a mechanism. There's a pre-programmed sleep, and that takes time, and you have to be in bed, and your head's got to be on the pillow, and your eyes have got to be closed, and the lights have got to be off, and no music in your ears, none of that stuff before the brain can start to do that preliminary work. So I say, uh, for me, and, and this, in the book, I'm very careful yet to define this because there's, there's a lot of confusion out there sure. in the scientific world. I define uh, sleep as the moment you put your head on the pillow from the moment you take it off the pillow, and that needs to be nine hours. Mm. Now, there are some people listening who are going to say, I don't need that amount. I never have. I feel rested on... You know, I know people who say they need five or six hours of sleep. Would you argue with them? Yes, I would. And let me quote a well-known scientist, and I, I, I forget his name, but this is all in my book. He said that the percentage of people who need, uh, rounded to a whole number, who need less than six hours of sleep, is zero. <laughs> That's pretty easy. <laughs> so they're right. fooling it's themselves. zero. Mm. Uh, Dr. Hart, uh, from a man's perspective, uh, this 
idea in the culture that we don't need to sleep because mm-hmm. we want to be prowess. We want to do our jobs all macho day long. Man. <laughs> the macho man, right. 24-7. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of a woman out there, Julie, a mom. I, I see it in Jean, my wife. You know, she is working in the home from the time the sun is up until the sun is down. They're without sleep, too, and feeling exhausted. But they, I, I know Jean, she struggles finding it easy to go to bed early. And I think just as the guys struggle with that desire to do more and mm-hmm. compete, as a woman, we struggle with kind of guilt about needing sleep. Yeah, I, I just remember when Mike and I were first married, I needed more sleep than he did. And that was a shameful thing for me. And sometimes before he'd get home from work, I'd sneak in a little nap. And as soon as I heard him pull in, I'd jump up and I'd make the bed. <laughs> and I'd, I'd like, you know, splash Cover water on my is. face. And if he caught me napping, I mm-hmm. felt like I was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, throughout lifetime, a woman, particularly if she's home with the kids, feels like she has to be so productive with that time that taking a nap or, or needing to go to bed early is something that she should be ashamed of. Yes, and that's the big myth. And the, the tragedy is that uh, many don't get enough sleep as a result. I suppose, uh, you know, this is a book for the whole family. And so uh, I've, I've got a section in there that deals with young mothers because the, uh, when a baby comes into your life, the first <laughs> thing that goes out the window is sleep. Yep. But this is a time when they need help, guidance in counseling how to how to sleep through that crisis. And there are a number of suggestions I provide in the book. The the first point that may be very important to understand here is that we sleep in one-and-a-half-hour cycles. Mm. If you get a a one-and-a-half-hour cycle of sleep, that goes into the pot. Or uh, sleep research uses the concept of the bank, a sleep bank. That goes into the bank. That counts towards the nine hours. So if you sleep for three hours, you've, you've put two into the bank. If you have to then be up for an hour or two, it doesn't matter. When you go back to sleep again, it accumulates. It's got to be nine hours in a 24-hour period. Mm. So a mother can design her day. If she can just deal with the guilt, mm-hmm. she can design her day in order to get enough sleep through the day. It's interesting what you said there, though. A lot of people feel like if they wake up, in the middle of the night, yes. you know, if they wake up at 3 in the morning, yes. that they haven't gotten a good night's sleep. But yes. you're saying if no, you no. go back to sleep... We, we wake up every one and a half hours. Uh, if, if you watch a video of a person sleeping, and, and one and a half hours, about then, we would take a few minutes, they'll roll over, they'll turn over. They, there are five stages of sleep. So what happens is that you move back to stage two, maybe it's stage one sleep. You're, you're aware of uh, you're around you, but you're still sleeping. Stage one is conscious aware of what's going on, but it's the first stage of sleep. It's a necessary part of sleep. And then you fall back to sleep again. Some great advice and insights from Dr. Arch Hart. And uh, Danny, you have spent a lot of time counseling kids and their families. This is something that can make a big difference. Uh, what do you tell parents whose kids aren't sleeping enough? Well, there may be many different reasons why kids aren't sleeping. Maybe they're staying up with their devices. Maybe they're talking to uh, friends, but it may be actually a physical problem that's going on. And if that's the case, you want to have a doctor help you out with that. If it's the other and the child just doesn't know when to call it quits for the day, mm-hmm. a parent has to explain to a child why it's important to sleep. Kids want to know why. Why do I need to go to sleep if I still feel energized? The hard part is that uh, teenagers especially don't get that tired feeling until about midnight or one o'clock in the morning. That's just how the body is shifting 
And for us as adults, it's about 9 to 10 o'clock at night. So it's hard to empathize with that. But we can remember back to the time where we wanted to stay up. The fact is that the brain is creating those ESPN type of moments mm. where it's creating the clips for the, for the brain to consolidate what has happened throughout the day and learn from those things. And if you don't take the time to sleep, the brain doesn't repair. You, the memory goes. You, you don't have those consolidation of memories. It's kind of like having a party all day and not having cleanup. Mm. The brain is working very hard overnight, cleaning up what has happened during the day, and it won't be prepared for the next day. It's the preparation for the next day. That is really interesting, and I hadn't heard that before. What about one of my kids who just said, Daddy, I have a lot to process, and an hour after going to bed, I'm still thinking. You know, I'm still I'm still reviewing the day. How can I help that child kind of wind down and let go so their brain can do what you just said? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with breathing, calming down the heart rate. For, for those types of kids, journaling through and talking through the journal mm. where they don't have to forget it and they can process the next day. It's still going to be there the next day, but yeah. reminding them your brain needs to close down from the party because it's going to have a new one tomorrow. And it needs to be ready for it because if you already have a mess and you're starting the next day with that mess, it's going to be harder for you. And this is your way to help your body and your brain repair. Hmm. That's good. Uh, and you're going to find great insights, resources, and articles about this at focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. One example would be an article called Sleep-Deprived Kids Need More Rest, uh, that article. And then we have a best year ever email resource. Sign up at focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. Next time, we're going to be talking about a very important topic here on the Thriving Student Podcast. And what a lot of parents do is they take style, give it a principle-sounding statement, operate on that, thus producing legalism, resulting in rebellion. Mm. Whatever is not condemned is allowed. And that's why there's so many statements in the Bible about freedom. More from Dr. Tony Evans on the next episode of Thriving Student. On behalf of Danny Huerta and the entire team here, I'm John Fuller, and thanks for listening to the Thriving Student Podcast from Focus on the Family.